art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, we, um, last week we talked about this. We went through this outline and we said that what we wanted to do was highlight those six reasons God's people come to church. We'll begin with number one next week. Uh, which uh, is a time that uh, we will be talking. Uh, you have it there in your notes, I think. I think you have it. Yes, uh, about worshiping God together to be strengthened in Christ, equipped to do the work of ministry, conduct kingdom business, touched and made whole by Jesus and empowered to spread the gospel. Next week we'll begin with number one, to worship God together. I don't want that message to be confused with this one, which is talking about in spirit and in truth. Um, what we have found, I'm sorry. Um, what we have found is um, that when we, when we come together, these dynamic things begin to happen. Uh, and to the degree that we open our heart to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we see us more perfectly walking in those things. Now, I want to say this, not any church has reached perfection. Every church has flaws. Every church has things they do well. Every church has things they don't do well. I'm not here today to criticize um, any church or any other setting, although I do have some concerns about the Western church in general. We're a part of it. I want to talk about those things, and I don't mean to sound like I'm whining, but I don't want to criticize others because I know what it's like uh, every week or so to get a criticism from somebody that says we're not doing something right, or we don't love enough, or we don't sing enough, or we don't do whatever enough. So the goal of this is not to say we're right and everyone else is wrong. The goal of this is to be sure that we are pleasing the Lord. We can't account for any other church. We can't account for any other congregation or any other denomination. The only thing after a long time in ministry, I've come to the conclusion that uh, I, I may not be able to set a nation right or a state right or a city right or even a neighborhood right, but I can set my family right and I can set my life right. And the more we do that, the more our influence will grow. Now, we also last week talked about, and I wanted to be sure that I was clearly understood, we talked about 2020 being a time that, uh, and, I, and I said that the church is under judgment. I believe that. And loved ones, um, I, I can't express to you how much I have confidence in you and love you, but judgment begins at the house of God. And we all have to open our hearts when we feel judgment begins. And I said that in 2020, God began to speak to us about what was in us. There were things that came out of the church in general in 2020 that I never thought would have come out of the church in general or with specificity. I've seen surprising statements and surprising postures taken by many churches, but 2020 was designed to show us what's in us, 
We said that 2021 was designed to show us what we are. Now you say, well, now what's the difference showing us what's in us and what we are? You and I need to understand, we don't have to be defined by what was in us. When God shows us something, good, bad, or ugly, we have the option of dealing with that. So a lot of people were surprised at what came out of their mouth, what came out of their keyboard, what came out of their attitude in 2020. But a lot of people just continued to walk in that. But a lot of people said, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to live like this. I'm not going to carry this stuff in my heart. So God seemed to be working in our midst. Uh, he said, now that you see what you are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, what are you going to choose to follow? Are you going to make the decision that says, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord? Or are you going to continue to walk down a path where you try to solve spiritual problems with material means, with earthly, natural means? I believe that 2022 is a year of definition. We're, we've, we've seen what's in us. We know what we are. We've made that decision. And now God is defining this new path that we are to walk. But not only is he defining the new path, he is also bringing about division. There is a division in our nation. There's a division all over the world. And the body of Christ is not exempt. You say, well, no, the body of Christ is united. No. Maybe the ones you agree with are united. Maybe the ones I agree with are united. But no, there's a, there's a brokenness in the church just like there is in our government in our nations, in the nations of the world. And I do believe that God is working to bring unity, not uniformity. We don't have to be exactly the same in the way we worship or even the things that we emphasize as long as we're true to the gospel. But he is giving us uh, a sense of destiny. And God, I believe, has spent at the end of this year, it will be three years or the beginning of the spring, actually, it'll be three years that God has been surgically opening what we are to show us what we can become. And he's going to open the door, I believe, in the next year. And th these aren't, when I say next year, I don't mean it starts at 1201 in 2023. It may start, you know, at the end of this year, it may start a little after the, the beginning of next year. But generally, 2023 is going to be a year, I believe, that we're going to see God open doors for the remnant. And he's going to open opportunities. God is in the business right now of kindling a fire in his people. And most of us, I'm not criticizing, this is just the nature of us. Most of us aren't even aware of the fire yet. We're not aware that we're living in uh, a moment of, 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 uh, uh, of resonance in the, in the kingdom. I believe that God is putting together something that is no more than a mist around us right now. Now, some have a very good perception and they're picking up on the mist, or they might pick up on part of the mist. But loved ones, God is changing the very air that you breathe spiritually. He's, he's creating a mist, not so that we can heap things unto ourselves, but that we can walk into our destiny. I know that I, from the very first Sunday I was here, I began to, to, to hound us about a sense of balance because I believe that what God wants this church to be known for, uh, among other things, is, is to represent biblical balance. And I tell you what 
I've learned about balance through the years. Balance to a lot of people is you got a little bit of both, you know, little good, little bad, little spiritual, little worldly, but you're balanced, you know. Um, God is not that kind of God of balance. Um, it's not balance, meaning a little bit of both. And it's not, you know, the Bible says to be uh, excellent in what is right. In Romans, be excellent in what is right. Be innocent in evil. He, he's not saying just see what you can get away with. As, and as long as you do it moderately, that'll provide a good balance. No, be excellent in what is right. Be innocent in evil. And as a result of that, if we can learn to excel in what is right and to reject what is evil, uh, it, let me tell you, we've got to get rid of this notion that somehow we picked up that at the end of life, when we stand before the Lord, it's going to be a balancing scale that does our good outweigh the bad or does the bad outweigh the good. You go to heaven because of Jesus. You go to hell because you reject Jesus. It has nothing to do with balance. And balance is not a matter of just moderately evil. You know, if you just be moderate with evil, you'll be okay. No, we want to be innocent in evil. And then the God of peace, Paul says, will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. I appreciate the seven uh, mountain ideas about redeeming society. I believe that we ought to make society the best we can possibly make it. But let there be no doubt, we do not have the means to make everything on planet earth right. We don't have the ability. We don't have the strength. We don't have anything that's needed to redeem this world. We can do our part. We can bend things a little bit. We can make things uh, the way they ought to be. But make no mistake, the Bible is abundantly clear that evil will not be broken entirely until Jesus comes and breaks it himself. The Bible says that uh, Jesus will destroy Antichrist. Jesus will destroy Satan. Jesus will destroy the kingdom of Babylon with the glorious nature of his appearing. Now we do our best. I think sometimes we can have a doctrine that says, oh, I just want Jesus to come so I can get out of here. And, and what we do is we leave the rest of the world to go to hell. We leave society to go to hell. We leave our lost loved ones to go to hell. I'm just waiting for Jesus to come and get me out of here. We are not escapists. But God is doing something in our hearts it's a mist in some lives right now is all it is. It's, it's, it's almost a fragrance in the air that you can spiritually, that may be all it is, but something's changing. And I'll tell you what it is. Uh, it's easy to just say, oh, it's revival and God's sending revival. Well, I believe that God will send revival, but loved ones, it's the refining of the church. It's the refining of the church. If judgment begins in the house of God, then judgment will not relent until the house of God is cleansed. We are so adamant about cleansing Washington and cleansing culture, and we need to cleanse Washington. God knows we need to cleanse Washington. 
We need to cleanse culture. We need to cleanse this mindset of lawlessness and carnality that seems to rule the day. We need to do that. But loved ones, if judgment begins at the house of God, judgment leaves first at the house of God. The church must do right. And when the church does right, then we will be a witness to the rest of society. But God is not, it's never worked. You read the Old Testament. It never worked when some segment of society had reformation, but the house of God did not. It's got to take place in the house of God. Now, we said all of that to say this. I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and get right to the point. Uh, I, I want you to get pregnant. I need you to get pregnant. You say, oh, I'm too old for that. Not what I'm talking about. You say, well, I'm not even married. You, this kind of pregnancy, you don't even have to be married. Uh, loved ones, God in this mist, as we begin to see it, you see, we thought balance, you know, some have said that it's a little bit of both. Some have thought balance was just something was withheld. But Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. But hear me, loved ones, we in the West have, have misconstrued that statement to mean he wants us to have more stuff. He wants us to have more comfort. Now, I'm not against stuff. I'm not against comfort. Uh, I'm, I'm not against, you know, somebody says, is it harder to serve God with money or without money? I've done it both ways. And I'm, I want to tell you, um, I, I, I prefer to serve God with stuff. Just my flesh. I prefer to serve God with stuff. Nothing wrong with that. But loved ones, Pentecostals have been passively guilty of this. Charismatics have been blatantly, aggressively guilty of this. But we have made the blessing of the Lord a matter of our comfort and a matter of how much stuff we have. And when God says, I want you to have abundant life, when Jesus said, that's the reason I came, Jesus did not come for stuff. Jesus came for us to find a biblical balance and very few people have biblical balance. Um, we discover that Jesus is healer and we fall so in love with the fact that Jesus is healer, we throw the dynamic of suffering out the window. We believe that Jesus is so much of this, and a good thing, and he is, but he's so much this, we throw this out the window. There's a passage of scripture about Jesus that is so dynamic. It says that he came full of grace and full of truth. And we can't handle that. We, we, we are so screwed up in our brain over that. We have divided Old Testament God from New Testament God. And Old Testament God is a God of, of uh, truth and of judgment and of, and of, and of uh, uh, payback. But the New Testament God has been to anger management class and he has his certificate and he's all grace and all truth. But loved ones, I want to tell you the God of, of Isaiah and the God of the Pentateuch is the same God of the New Testament. He's full of grace then, he's full of grace now. He was full of righteousness then, he's full of righteousness now. And we have got to stop this nonsense 
of going to great lengths to violate the Scripture and twist the Scripture. The New Testament says there will be those, even in the church, that wrestle the Scripture to their own destruction. They, they, they want to be biblical, but they take it and they'll twist it until it looks like something it's not. But it's to their destruction. And God is calling us to a balance where we understand grace and truth. God is calling us to a balance where we are truly in love with Jesus. And that's why I made the reference to being pregnant. Let me explain what I mean. Um, I'm simply saying that until the church discovers this secret, I don't think we're going to get past judgment. I don't think things are going to turn around. And we don't even know for sure what it looks like when it turns around. See, we're still thinking we can vote repentance and vote reformation and vote a move that'll take us back to where we used to be. But loved ones, God is after something so much deeper. I, now, now, don't get me wrong. I think we ought to vote. And I think we need to repent for some of the voting we've done. And I think that we ought to stand for right and righteousness. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with those things. But we need to understand that those things are just tools that are part of our... Um, uh, arsenal, so to speak, to do our best to represent God in this present age. But we, we haven't understood that what needs to happen is a transition in our heart so that we truly, truly, truly say that we love him with every fiber of our being. You say, oh, that's just, Pastor, that's so simple. We've moved past that. You know what? I've been reading Mike Bickle for 20, 25 years. And Mike Bickle came out with things like uh, the passion for Jesus and, you know, loving God and stuff like that. And I've got to admit, I read his stuff for years and thought, this is just so basic. You know, Mike, this is so basic. We've got this down. We love Jesus. We need some meat here. And I've come to believe that Mike Bickle was smelling an aroma that most of us didn't smell. I think he was seeing something that most of us did not see. And Mike Bickle, in his simplicity of loving Jesus, has, is now leading the way for the repentance and reformation that God wants to do in the church. You see, love, when it is introduced, makes all the difference in the world. I've talked about this. Other preachers have talked about this. But when it came time for Jacob to be married and he wanted to, to, to marry Rachel, she was the love of his life. And he struck a deal for her, but the deal said, you've got to work for her. I mean, if you want her, you've got to work for me, father-in-law said, for seven years. Now, we say, oh, you know, that's, that's okay. I always knew marriage was a sentence anyway. Uh, no, not at all. Um, it, it, for us to say, well, he worked for her seven years, we don't think of that as necessarily an onerous thing because after all, he, he had her. He, he, he brought her into his home and she was his wife. He just had a seven-year contract. But let me tell you what it would be like in our culture. It would be like in our culture, gentlemen, you find the love of your life and you want to marry her 
Uh, and I know that the analogy breaks down a little bit, but it's like you can't marry her until you can give her a ring. Can't marry her until you give her a ring. But imagine if the ring was so expensive that it took you seven years to pay for the ring, but you couldn't have her till the seven years were up. We'd have a little trouble with that. But Jacob found a, a solution. I don't even know that he was working, looking for one, but this was the solution. The seven years that he worked for her seemed as but a few days. Why? Because he read a book on time management. <laughs> because he did some creative financing and paid the ring off early, you know. No, it was very simple. What was an onerous task seemed like a light task because of the love that he had for her. God is moving the church of the Lord Jesus, the remnant church, our church included. He is moving us to a place not where we have better organization or better preaching or better worship. And we always want to do the best in all of that that we can do. But God is moving us to a place. It's the reason you smell what you smell in the spirit. It's the reason that you feel what you feel when you're ending your devotions by your bedside. You know that this is not the end of the story. You know something is happening. Your mind wants to focus on the economy. Your mind wants to focus on politics. Your mind wants to focus on lawlessness. Your mind wants to focus on, I wonder if this guy's the Antichrist. And all of those things are legitimate po points of focus. But you know that God is pointing you somewhere else. You're not sure what it is. Well, maybe I need to change churches. Maybe I need to change denominational affiliation. Maybe I need to go and get another version of the Bible. I need to do something different because there's a restlessness in my heart. But loved ones, I want to tell you, God is courting you. God is conditioning you. God is drawing you. The other day I was praying, and uh, I, I won't bore you with the details, but if you've ever been in our teaching of dreams and visions, um, I said that most of the dreams and visions I have are spring out of a dream, or a, uh, I, well, I've called it a dream, but I think it was a vision that I had in 1975. I was just a young man in Bible college. And we had such a powerful encounter at chapel and what was going to be a regular service turned into um, uh, just an encounter with the presence of God. And I prayed and I, 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 I went back to the room after probably a couple of hours because even though I felt the presence of God, I had, I had an exam the next day. And uh, the, the school used to be really good about um, whenever we had special spiritual emphasis they, no tests were allowed. I, so I don't, I don't know why, but I ended up with an exam. And um, I went back and said, I have to sleep. But when I laid down on my bunk, I, I just, I couldn't sleep. So I dropped down on my knees besides. And I said, Lord, I'm just going to pray another few moments. And as I kept pouring my heart out to God, I felt like there was such a hunger coming from my heart. And I felt the Lord drawing me. And loved ones, I want to tell you, this is so important because it's not like this every day. 
But whenever you feel the Spirit of God pulling you and drawing you, you say, well, I set 15 minutes to pray. My 15 minutes are up. I got work to do. If the Spirit of God is drawing you, follow that drawing. Young person, if the Spirit of God interrupts your plans, drawing you, you may not know what the draw is about. You may not know what the draw is for, but God Almighty has a plan and he has a purpose behind that drawing and he's, he, he wants to do something special. And that's the way it was for me. And that's the dream I told you about where uh, I say, again, I called it dream because I, for years I wasn't comfortable saying vision, but I wasn't in bed asleep. I, I, I was kneeling by the bed and I just kind of went into another world. So I think it was a vision, but I was so unfamiliar with such things in those days. I didn't know what to call it, but I believe it was a vision. And God showed me uh, kind of a summary, kind of an overview. You ever go to a movie and you watch a trailer and it's supposed to tell you enough about the movie, the coming attraction, that you understand two things. You understand basically what it's about, number one. <coughs> and number two, I want to see this. I want, to, I, I want to go see it. I understand a little bit, but there's more. I want to get into the theater and see this movie. Well, God kind of gave me a trailer of events that would happen primarily um, uh, from that time until, until this time. I, I, but I did not understand all of them. I, I tried to interpret everything, and some of my interpretations were right. Some of them were wrong. But I want to tell you, in the last two and a half, three years, God has things that I did not understand from 1975 there in Bower Hall began to just come alive to me. And I began to understand things that I did not understand for decades. And I was praying about it and I said, Lord, you've shown me this, you've shown me this, you've shown me this. But I said, the thrust of what you've shown me, I have not seen. And in that vision that I had, I saw the church of the Lord Jesus walking in a purity, a, a robe of whiteness so pure that it defied description. The closest thing I can compare it to is the image of Jesus. It wasn't Jesus that I saw. It was the church uh, in the book of Revelation where his robe was so bright and so clean and so clear. It was purer than any launderer was able to produce. The scripture says, and I saw the church walking in such purity and I saw the church walking in such power. And I knew instinctively that the church was having, at least of that generation was having its greatest day. I knew that what I saw was the church experiencing something that I don't even know if I've read about in church history. God is going to do something phenomenal. And I did not know, you know, I, you know, I was, well, I was 20 years old. I thought maybe, you know, he's going to do it in my church or, you know, I'm, I'm the apostle that's going to bring this to pass. I didn't know why he was showing it to me. But as he, as, as the, the vision moved to its conclusion, amazing miracles began to take place. And right alongside of the amazing miracles, the church suffered incredible persecution. Healings were commonplace. And so was intense suffering. And, and God was showing me that he is not bound by circumstances. 
He's not bound by situations. And loved ones, you and I should not be bound by situations. God is so great that he is able to allow great travail and tribulation at one, on one hand and work mightily by his spirit at the same time. This is the God who is full of grace and truth. This is the God who is um, not afraid to match Jesus against the mightiest empire the world had ever seen to that point. If it had been me, I'd have sent him with, against an easier opponent. But God's not afraid of Rome. And God's not afraid of desecration. And God's not afraid of desolation. And I remember in the vision, it threw me into confusion. I'm not trying to make a doctrinal statement here. Please don't, don't misunderstand me. But I had grown up with the teaching that when things get bad, Jesus is going to take us out. I mean, just a standard view of the rapture. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But I'm telling you this, I had been taught all my life that you don't have to worry about things getting bad because God will take you out and you can watch from the balcony. But in the vision, the church was not taken out of what I, I don't know if it was the great tribulation, but it was great tribulation. It was great difficulty. I'm not trying to say that God showed me the church was going through the tribulation, but I'm trying to tell you this, God showed me that the worse it got, the greater his grace became. It reminded me of uh, the first chapter of Exodus in the Living Bible where it talks about the baby boys being thrown to the, to the crocodile gods of the Nile. And Israel had moved from favored status in the days of Joseph there in Egypt to, to horrendous slavery and destitution. The, their plight had become horrible. Now it does give us hope. It says, but God heard their cry. So whenever you're in a bad place, always cry out to God. But that's another sermon for another time. But there's a verse, and I like the way the, the living Bible put it. It spoke of Israel and said, but the more Egypt afflicted them, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. The more they were afflicted, the more they grew. And God showed me in that situation that we were going to come upon a day when unbelievable persecution and unbelievably impossible economy to navigate would beseech, uh, besiege the people of God. And, and there would be um, governmental opposition. And the list went on and on. It just kept getting darker and darker and darker. And the darker the situation came, the brighter the garment became. And the louder the proclamation of the gospel became. And when it got so bad that I thought it wasn't survivable, the church began to sing. And this is what they began to sing. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. And they began to sing it louder and louder. Just the refrain of that song, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Some were praying, saying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it grew and grew and grew. And I was, my eyes opened and I realized where I was. And I thought, this is so loud. They've got to be hearing it all over the dorm. And I checked and nobody else heard it. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And this is what rattled me. 
In the vision, it was not a, God, it's so bad, get us out of here. That was devoid of any of the praying or any of the singing. Nobody that I saw singing, nobody that I heard singing was saying, Lord, you said you wouldn't cause us to go through this. Get us out of here. Lord, move us out of this trouble. Lord, it's okay if hell falls on earth. They deserve it, but get us out of here. No, it was a people that looked to heaven with such incredible love in their hearts that they were saying, Lord, we are nothing without you. We are incomplete without you. Righteousness will not come without you. Oh, we can bring a measure of righteousness. We can bring a measure of the kingdom. But Lord, we need you to come. And I realized that this was the song of the beloved. And I saw in that vision in 1975, I saw the church united and holy in love with Jesus in a way that I did not understand. I could not comprehend it. It short-circuited me because of the great love. And I realized it was maybe, maybe Jacob had just experienced a little sliver of it where he said, the worst thing I'm facing, uh, virtual uh, servanthood for seven years is nothing because of the way that I love. And I said, Lord... See, my question had been, when are we going to see this? And the Lord said, as soon as the song, as soon as the church starts singing her song. And I, you know, four years ago, I preached, a, you know, midterm election blues, or maybe that was two years ago, three years ago. I don't remember. But I said, you know, you've lost your song. We got to start singing. We started singing. And a lot of us have songs, but it wasn't this song. This was a song that was lost in the glory of Jesus. This wasn't a song about my victories. Oh, I got the devil by the tail on a downhill drag singing ti-yi-yippee-yi-yay. No, it was not a song like that. It was not a song even about the goodness of God. It was the song about the love of God that he has poured out in my life and now the church is pouring back to him. I, I didn't understand. I, I, I said, Lord, are, are you saying that we've got to start praying for the return of Christ? And the Lord said, is that what was happening? And I said, no. I said, it's what was happening, but what was happening was deeper. It was deeper. It was, a, it was an indescribable love. It was a love that we can't be talked into. It was a love that we can't be shamed into. It was a love that we can't be preached into. It was a love that Pastor Glenn can't sing us into. It was what John was talking about when he said, you love him and you've never seen him. But you love him because he first loved you. This was a love that was emanating from the church, but it was not something the church worked up. It was something that the church had been gifted by the presence of God. I want to read to you from my journal. Now, don't worry. You say, Pastor, you haven't even got to the notes. I did the notes last week. You should have been here. I'm giving you the end of the notes. And this is what I wrote in my journal. 
because the Lord put on my heart. He said, when you, he said, look for this. When my people begin to pray, even so come, Lord Jesus, from a heart that cannot wait, of such love that they cannot wait for the bridegroom to come. He said, when you see that, the time is ripe for what I'm going to do. He said, you've not yet come to that place in which from the depth, I, uh, I say he said, I wrote, I should say, after him speaking this to me. We have not yet come to that place in which from the depth of our souls we cry out for Jesus to return. We have misunderstood the return of Jesus. We have misunderstood its purpose and we have misunderstood its passion. Right now, the return of Christ is little more than a passing option in our quest for an easier life, for our desire to live a life free from conflict, or even to live our life in devotion to a doctrine we have been taught. The prayer for Christ's return right now reflects only a disillusionment with our culture. But our longing for his return is not the passion of our soul. And until it becomes the passion of our soul, it will not be the fulfillment of what you have been shown in these visions. I wrote that down and I went to prayer later that day and I immediately in the spirit saw a pregnant woman. And um, I, I'm not going to tell you everything, but I saw a pregnant woman. He said, this is what I'm after. The glow on this pregnant woman's face was indescribable. She knew that life was coming. And I don't mean to be crude, but when I looked at this woman, the glow on her face, I knew that the glow on her face had come from a moment of intimacy. I, I, I mean, you don't get pregnant from afar. And she was ecstatic that she was pregnant. But loved ones, I want to tell you about this. God said, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a people that have begun to walk in a love that's otherworldly. He said, it can't be generated by man. It can't be generated by a culture. It has to be my gift. My seed in the spirit has to be placed into a life so that life is produced. And let me tell you this about being pregnant. Being pregnant is not easy. Oh, there's the moment of ecstasy where I'm going to have a baby, and there ought to be. We need to, we, need to, we need to fight against abortion, but we need to celebrate life as much as we fight against abortion. We, we need to celebrate the overturn of Roe v. Wade, but understand the battle is going to intensify. The, 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 a battle might have been won, but the war is still going on. And I want to tell you, hell will intensify its battle against life. And I appreciate what the Supreme Court did. We stand by it. We applaud. We don't take a neutral position as a church. We don't open, you know, we're not open to other views that say, well, maybe you ought to look at it this way. But we do understand this. The battle will increase, but our response to life must increase. We need to be willing to adopt these babies. 
We need to be able to fund these families. Uh, I, I realize that there are issues with rape and abortion. The battle is not, a battle might be over, but the war is not over. And we've got to do the right thing. But generally, this woman was just in a state of ecstasy, but she understood that, number one, things got to be set aside. You know, in the natural, when a woman hears that she's pregnant, she says, oh, no wine for me. Uh, hopefully, you would think that a woman on drugs would set aside her drugs for the sake of the baby. I, I know that doesn't always happen. But lovings, I want to tell you, there's a price to being pregnant. You've got to set things aside. You can't just eat for yourself. You've got to eat for a baby. You've got to, you, you can't just make decisions for yourself. You've got to make decisions for the baby. And I want to tell you something. You are about to experience the craziest imbalance of your life. You just thought your husband was imbalanced, but you are going to have all kinds of hormonal issues. You are going to have a thing called morning sickness and you will curse morning sickness and you will, you know, but you know what you find out about morning sickness? And this is an oversimplification. Please don't, Journal of American Medical Association, please don't send me your article. I know it's an oversimplification, but morning sickness is basically your body making a good adjustment to being, to being pregnant. It's a good thing. In fact, we, we know what it's like to, to lose babies in the process. And our doctor said, the sicker you are, the better your chance of carrying this baby. So I was cheering Ramona being sick. She didn't cheer it so much, but she understood it. Uh, the, 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 and then there's the issue of being, um, uh, of, of postpartum issues after the baby comes. So things are set aside. Things are at least temporarily in imbalance. She expects a season that is different because she's carrying a life. We, we need to understand that if that's true in the natural, that it is doubly true in the spiritual. You'll need to realize there are changes to your house that need to be made. Your sacred spot that you won't share with anybody, now you gladly turn into a nursery. And, and loved ones, I, I, I realize that this is a, probably a, a very difficult analogy to make because I know there are people here that there have been miscarriages in your family or there are barrennesses in your family. And I don't say this to, to try to mean in any way that you are excluded and that you are failed. Uh, failed in any way. I'm just trying to say that there's a correlation between being pregnant in the natural and being pregnant in the spiritual. This is not negating adoption or anything else. It just simply is my attempt to say that to bring forth life, changes have to occur. And that's why it says about Jesus, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, when you do two services, you can't always remember what you said where. But the book of Hebrews says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. He did it because of the joy that was set before him. And that's why Paul said that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. We have to make that, see, we have to have a heavenly deposit in our lives 
so that we begin to understand no matter what we're going through, that's what I saw in the vision, no matter how bad this is, it's not even worth talking about. It's not even worth talking about. Paul said, it's not worthy to be compared. I have preached and said, I know you're going through a tough time, but just take that tough stuff you're going through and compare it to heaven. Don't you, you compare them. Don't you think heaven's, Paul said, don't do that. Don't dignify the garbage you're going through by even comparing it to what God is going to do in your lives. That's why Paul was able to say, you with joy, <laughs> with joy, you have suffered the confiscation of your property. You have, with joy, suffered the loss of life of a loved one. Some of you are under sentence of death right now. Some of you have spent time in prison. He says, none of that is even worthy to be put on the, the ledger sheet with what God is going to reveal in you. I had a chance a few years ago to go to Vietnam and preach to uh, pastors and tell them how to be a good pastor and how to have a great church. And I was so excited about it. I, I wanted to go. I, I, I'd, I'd never been to that part of the world. And it was all set up. And I began to pray about it. And I began to ask for, give me the, give me the background of these pastors. And I began to feel more and more uncomfortable. I began to feel more and more uneasy. And I remember sitting in my office over there one day. I made the decision. I said, every one of these pastors, there were either just over, just under 100 pastors that were supposed to be there. Every one of them have spent time in prison for Jesus Christ. Every one of them has been beaten and tortured for Jesus Christ. And I, nobody put this guilt on me. I mean, it, it was, I was going to be the honored guest. And then I, I started praying. I said, Lord, help me, help me to understand what I'm feeling here. And I, I, I really, I came to the conclusion. I said, I am supposed to go over there and tell these men how to be a good pastor. I'm supposed to tell them how to grow a church. And I, I, I said, Lord, I can't do it. I said, I, I, I crumble and get upset when a church member sends me a nasty letter. I said, I, I can't do it. Uh, what they already know through their suffering is greater than anything I can tell them. And I want to tell you, God, God opened some doors because of that for me to do something else. But I never did go to Vietnam because I realized that my experiences were not worthy to be compared with their experiences. I, I, in fact, I, I said we'd be better to bring them here and have them teach our pastors. Loved ones, we need a shift that occurred in that vision where the darker the day comes, the brighter the light of his glory becomes. We need to discover a love for Jesus. And this, see, this is, the devil has made love, you know, love one another. God is a love, you know, God is love. And everyone that loveth is born of God. We love those verses and those verses are true. We just have no idea how powerfully true they are. 
We have no idea of the dynamic that, that works behind those verses. And I want to tell you, we are in a day that God is beginning to fill the atmosphere with, with tokens of his grace and tokens of his glory. And God is about to do something in the church as the church turns from her sin and turns from her misguided zeal. We better not underestimate the way the Lord loves the church. See, we've, we've spent the last 30 years changing doctrine, not in our church, changing doctrine to make it more palatable. We spent the last 30 years changing the way we say things so that people never feel conviction when they come to church because conviction's of the devil. The devil is condemnation and we want everybody to feel good. Loved ones, the New Testament church in the book of Acts, two questions were asked of people that came. You know, what does this mean? And what do I do? What does it mean and what, what does it do? We have wasted our inheritance as the church in America trying to create a culture where nobody has any questions. And the worst thing is that we've stopped asking questions. We've stopped asking, what do I do? Don't forget you see, we, we, we've changed doctrine. We've changed methodology. Now, there's nothing wrong with changing methodology if a methodology is what needs to be changed. But we don't understand that you can, you know, changing methodology to do this instead of this might be like just finding out you're going the wrong way and then you want to change, so you just accelerate. We have, the Lord is overhauling His church. The Lord says when you're pregnant, you can't live the way you lived before. You're not able to live the way you lived before. You, you, you can't sleep as well at night because there's life growing in you and you have to adjust for the life. We, we, we are insistent on having a revival that means we go back to the way it used to be We go back to the way it used to be, and we, we want to do that whether it's with government, whether it's with church, whether it's with, with baseball. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a traditionalist, and boy, I tell you what, every time they introduce a new major league rule change, I pout for several days. <laughs> to, to me, the New York Mets are still a new team, and they've been around since 1962, yeah, 61, 62. Loved ones, I understand when we say, well, we want it to be like it was. And we used to say a generation ago, this, this wasn't this way, it was this way. <laughs> and the scary thing is that, yeah, that was better. But what we might need to understand is that it's just possible this society will never go back. We, we may be saying that our whole problem can be solved if we can just go back in time. Now, I, I don't think that going back in time is necessarily a bad thing. I, th I think what's a bad thing is, let, hey, it's not perfect, so let's burn it down. That's a scary thing. I, I don't remember if it was my wife or one of my girls. One of my pet peeves right now is when you say, and forgive me because some of you have done this. It's okay. It's not your fault. It's mine. Um, thank you. 
What did they say? No problem. Well, I didn't think it was a problem for you to serve me my food. I, didn't, I don't want to hear no problem. I want to hear you're welcome because that's what we were, was drilled into us when, you know, dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was growing up. And I, I've, I've, I've joked about it with Justin. Justin looks at me every time somebody says, no problem, you know. And my wife or one of my girls, I forget who said it. They said, Daddy, you, you need to let this go. I said, let manners go? They said, America's built on good manners. They said, well, it's not bad manners to say no problem. They're, they're trying to say it's no problem. I'm glad to do this. Yeah, but they should say you're welcome. And they just said, you're just being a dinosaur. Just let it go. You, you just need to understand, Daddy, that... Um, or, or Stephen, whoever was saying it, is that you just need to understand that you let this bother you so much, you're not even hearing them acknowledge your thanks. I said, all right, all right, I'll, I'll try, I'll try. I said, thank you. And you know what they said? No problem. Loved ones, it's hard for us to change, especially it's hard for us to walk away from an era that we loved or a church movement that we loved. But churches change, denominations change, cultures change. And what we've got to be sure is that if we're pulling back, it's for righteousness, not cheap substitutes for righteousness. Don't, but at the same time, don't write off the church. You know, Jesus went in, and this was the first time, not the second time. He did it twice. But Jesus went in and turned over the tables and drove out the money changers, drove out the animals. And we, we love that because we say, Jesus hates traditionalists. Jesus hates religion. I'm not religious. I'm just in love with Jesus. Well, the word religion is actually a good word. It speaks of our liturgy of service. It speaks of the way we serve. Well, religion is not a bad word. But some people have made religion bad. But boy, I, I've done it. We all love it. Jesus doesn't like it when we don't do church right and he turns over the tables. And we make that a thing against traditionalists. That wasn't the problem. It says, when Jesus did it the first time, it says, then his disciples remembered what had been written in the Old Scriptures, Old Testament, what had been written, that the zeal of your house has consumed me. It wasn't a zeal for, for the newest, latest, greatest program. It wasn't a zeal for counter you know, revolutionaries and, and counterinsurgencies that, you know, we got to do things a new way. Jesus said anything that keeps people away from the Father and anything that desecrates the house is not good. And I tell you what we've done, we have, we have in our attempts, I'm talking about the church world, in our attempts to reform and make the church more relevant, we've made her powerless. We've made her uh, totally irrelevant. 
and we're good at answering questions that nobody is asking. Well, y'all are looking tense. Let's wrap this thing up. I do believe this. If we cross over into what I'm talking about and when we cross, we'll be surprised at what's going to have to fall. A lot of sacred cows are going to have to fall. A lot of denominations are going to have to let go of their grip on churches. I know there's a lot of denominational headquarters. The only thing they care about is who controls the money and who controls the property. That's a sin. And beginning at the top, a lot of denominations need to do a heart searching and a repentance. I think a lot of seminaries need to go back to teaching the Word of God instead of teaching the newest, latest craze. I do believe, though, we'll never do church the same way, not even, I'm not talking about a new liturgy or a new doctrine, but with a new passion. Now, here were the Christian life lessons, then we're going to wrap this up. There's a resonance in the spiritual atmosphere. There's a time for drawing close, not walking away. This is a time for drawing close, not walking away. There's a great reward in the secret place right now. And there's always a reward for coming to the secret place. But right now, God is, is giving special bonuses for drawing to the secret place. And the Lord spoke something to me that it took me a few weeks to work through there's a time that your status as a bondservant begins to change. Your choice is whether you will walk away or have your ear pierced. That's where we left off last week, Exodus 21. Now, verse 2 through 4, this is from the pots and pans section of, of Exodus. I, I like the burning bush. I like God sending the ten plagues and protecting the people of God in Goshen. I like the Passover. You know, I, I love the first part of Exodus. But Exodus very quickly pulls over into the service lane and starts giving you pots and pans. This is how you live with your neighbor. This is how you do this, that, and the other. It's good and it's inspired. But you just, I'm, I, when I read this part of Exodus, I'm living on the glory part. And this chapter tells about how to deal with slaves. Now, you've got to understand slavery, this is not a message about slavery and endorsement or condemnation. Or, it, it's just, it was there. And God said, this is how you deal with slaves. Now, the kind of slavery where someone is forcibly removed and loses their personhood, the kind of slavery we had in America, that was never in Israel. It was never like that. And you've got to understand that it was different. It, basically, if a person was a slave in Israel, they were a prisoner of war. And they, they were given the status of a slave instead of eradicated as God was cleansing the land. That's hard for us to understand. Or if you got in trouble financially, the way you resolved your debt um, is you went into servitude to the person that you owed. And now the person could forgive the debt. They, they always had that right. But to some people, this was the way they chose to have it worked out. But this was an interesting thing. No matter how much you owed or how, how much you were indebted to the person, you could only be required to serve for six years. And in the seventh year, you were set free. 
See, God's laws of the land and debt and all of this stuff was designed to give people hope. Instead, you know, I told you the first time I got a credit card, I worked for Sears. I wanted to buy a TV and I didn't have $300 for a TV. Little portable TVs were so expensive back then. Now you can buy them for 35 cents or something like that. <laughs> but it was going to cost me 300 and something dollars. And I didn't have 300 and something dollars. It might, have, might as well have been $33,000. And the guy that worked in televisions was my friend. I said, well, if I, if I get a credit card, I was a seminary student. I said, how much would the payment be? And he said, this baby will cost you $14 and something a month. And I, I tried to do some quick math. I said, okay, and for how long is that? And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, son, for the rest of your life. <laughs> But God, God, yeah, we can, a lot of us can say amen. God wanted to give hope even to slaves. He said, so at the end of six years, the seventh year, you have to release them. Now, this is the, what the scripture says. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh, he shall leave as a free man without a payment to you. Okay? He owes you nothing. Whether he's worked off the debt or not, at six years, you let him go because I want him to have hope. I want him to still be able to have a family. I want him to still be able to, to, to have a legacy for his children. If he comes to you alone, he shall leave alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife will go with him. But if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall leave alone. Now, to us, that's just unthinkable. But it was, you know, I gave you your wife. That was further indebtedness. They stay with me. Now, we also know from secular writings that often the wife and children were released anyway, but it was not required. Now, here something happens that has a spiritual application. That's why we don't want to give up on the Old Testament. When Paul was talking about um, uh, well, boy, this sounds self-serving. We still about paying ministers. He appealed to a passage in Deuteronomy, and he said, Deuteronomy, it says, you shall not um, muzzle the ox that grinds out the corn. Don't muzzle the ox. He said, as he grinds out the corn, whatever corn falls in his path, the ox needs to be able to scoop down, eat it, because that's where the principle, New Testament principle came from. The workman is worthy of his hire. And this is what Paul said. He said, does God care only about oxen? Or is he telling us this for our sake? So God tells us a lot of things. There's a surface, immediate meaning, but there's some deeper meaning to it. And I believe there's something here. But... If the slave plainly says, and that phrase translated plainly says, it, it wasn't that you could hoodwink him into a deal. It, it had to be something from the heart. Because this sounds manipulative. But God said, if this is really his heart, then he has an option. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children... I will not leave as a free man. 
See, now again, from our Western mindset, this man has just been manipulated. He's been trapped. Because what man would want to leave his wife and children? But the text indicates if it's something that can be truly said from his heart, I love my family, yeah, but I love my master. I've served him six years. And the reason I have this wife in my life is because of my master. The reason I have this children is because of my master. I have been a slave, but this man has treated me with dignity. And I want you to know I love him. And I'm not going to leave. And if that was, could be proven to be the intent of his heart. I mean, it, it, would, it, it, it would not work. It, you had to go back to the table for negotiations. If he said, oh, gum it, you trapped me. All right, I'll stay. No, it had to be an act of love. I will not leave as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. And most scholars believe that means you bring him to the elders who were representatives of God. And shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. Now, I'm not, I don't think we're going to start doing this on Sundays. But And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And he shall serve him permanently. You, you, you realize what he's saying? Let's, let's say that Pastor Corey was my slave. And I'd given him Joy, who was my slave earlier. And now he has her and these children. Corey would say, I don't, I don't want to leave Joy. I don't want to leave my children. So many of them, who's going to take care of them? And I would say, Corey, is that why you want to stay? He said, I do love them. But he'd say, Pastor, you have been so good to me. And everything in my life, even though I've been a slave, everything in my life I owe to you. And pastor, I can tell you that I love Joy and I love Easton. I love my girls. But I love you. I don't want to leave. So what do I do? I take him over to the door. I bring in the witnesses. He expresses and convinces them that this is what I want. And then I take an all. That's either the shop in the mall was not open. <laughs> I take an all and I pierce his ear and then I give him a ring to wear in his ear. And the result is that he who was a slave because he had to now becomes a slave because he loves his master. It wasn't required of him. And I don't mean if you don't let God pierce your ear, you're going to hell. Goodness, no. But I do believe that God brings us to times in our lives. I really do believe this. Where we make a decision and God has brought us there at the right time because he wants us to have one more avenue of expressing love. Now you say, this, this is kind of hard for me to wrap my head around. Well, it's a different culture, different traditions, a different time. But the bottom line, what I used to do because I had to, I will do, not for another six years, but I will do for the rest of my life because I love the master. 
Now, loved ones, if you're still concerned about, well, that's not fair. Well, you can make a case for it being perfectly fair. The wife belonged to the, to the master. You, you can make a case for it being fair, but I know what you're saying. This, you can get hung up in that, or you can just say there is a level of love and devotion where what you go through is not worthy to be compared to what you hold on to. And that's why Jacob was able to say, seven years, that's nothing. I'll have her for 70 years. That's nothing. And I believe that God is bringing as many churches as will. I believe God is bringing as many individuals as will. And loved ones, I'm not talking about just blind slavery. Oh, good grief. God has set you free from that kind of stuff. But I'm talking about loving with another world's kind of love. That's his gift to us. I want to read something to you as we, as we try to close. It's about Rick Warren. Um, as I understand it, Rick is retiring as senior pastor. Um, and I think maybe a week ago or so, it was his last Sunday. Uh, the Purpose Driven Life, uh, you, you know who Rick Warren is. Rick Warren concluded his message by explaining how love provides tremendous endurance to keep going when things are painful. Rick then shared that a rare incurable brain disorder which he was born with oftentimes gives him excruciating pain when he speaks publicly. Rick says, I really thought it was crazy that God chose me to be the pastor of a large church who experiences, a person who experiences pain every time he speaks. Rick recounted telling God that he could handle preaching one service, but as the church grew in attendance, that one service quickly became two and eventually reaching six to 12 weekend services, depending on the holidays. I'll be honest with you, Rick said, it was like going through a torture chamber repeatedly every time I preached over and over and over. Now Rick told the congregation that he had wanted to give up, but I never did. And I pushed through and endured that pain for 43 years. Now you say, well, he was just trying to manipulate them and no if he was trying to manipulate them he would have done it 43 years ago he said most people didn't even know about this pain why because I was trying to do what I was doing out of love for God and love for you when people would ask him if he loved to preach he was honest and said that I don't love to preach that's not, that's not a good thing for a pastor to say. <laughs> I, you know, I'd be afraid somebody would say, well, I don't love for you to preach either. <laughs> he, he, he was honest and said, I don't love to preach because it's so painful. They would reply by asking him why he continued to preach, and he told them it was because of love. I don't love to preach, but I love the people I preach to. And so I keep on doing it for their benefit. 
and I am addicted to change lives. I've endured the 43 years of pain because I love you, Rick explained, and I love God. The pastor said that before every sermon, he would pray, Father, I love you and you love me. And I love these people and they love me. And you love these people and they love you. This is not an audience to perform to. This is a family to be loved. There is no fear in love and perfect love casts out all fear. I will tell you that it was love that kept me going these 43 years of pastoral preaching. By God's grace and by his love, I've made it to the finish line. That's the power of love to endure and overcome difficult situations, Rick said. I don't know what situation you're going through right now, but if you inject love into it, your persistence, your determination, your diligence, your endurance will go up because you have a reason for doing what you're doing. And it's a reason beyond yourself. It's for Jesus' sake. It's because you love the Father and because you love the Holy Spirit, because you love the people that Jesus died for. Loved ones, I have no idea of how to end this service today. I told you last week that I would be back here because I wanted to end it well. Well, mission not accomplished. I don't know how to end this service because what I'm asking you to do is open your heart. I keep looking like heaven's there. It's that bright light. <laughs> we have a lesser heaven over here. I'm asking you to open your heart to say, Lord, I don't know how to love this way. See, I can't give you three steps to loving this way. I, I can't even tell you from the Bible how a person went from this to this. I, Paul said, the things I once loved, I now hate. And the things I once hated, now I love. I can't tell you how he did that, except that he saw something from heaven. I'm asking you to join me on a journey. It's not going to be something you get today in the altar unless God does something fabulous. It's going to be a journey. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some laying some things aside. And like that pregnant woman, you're going to stretch in ways you never thought possible. But everything you go through is because you know Something powerful is coming. Something beautiful is coming. Something lovely is coming. He has to do it. I will tell you this, the place to start is, if you don't already have it, Find a place of intimacy with God. If you have it, you're going to find yourself, like I was in 1975 after that prayer service, you're going to find yourself being drawn there more. You're going to find that when you've finished your prayer list, something in the atmosphere is telling you to come a little closer. Come a little closer. When I was a little boy, my mom was a, the bookkeeper and head cashier for a 
grocery store, uh, Del Champs grocery store in Pensacola. And this was before the days of Toys R Us and all of that stuff. The, the two favorite books in our house were the Bible and the Sears Christmas catalog. But at Dell Champs, they did something that was so special to me. It started about Thanksgiving. You know, you had the grocery store, the meat and produce along the, the outer walls. And over most of the store, there was um, a, a little shelf. Well, it wasn't a little shelf. It was about a four or five foot shelf. You never knew what it was for, but it was a shelf that went around most of the store. But about November, they would put Christmas packages. I mean, things you could buy for your kids. Every one of them was something majestic. Every one of them had the same price. It was, it was $12.95, and you thought, that's a lot of money to spend on a Christmas gift. But every Christmas, my mom used to let me go to the store with her. I'd usually play in the back, make forts out of the stock. But when they'd bring the gifts, I'd start walking around. I'd start looking at the gifts My mom, my, my, my middle brother Royce would come to pick me up because when she worked late, I couldn't stay at the store. And she would give him a little grocery list. He, she'd say, go get this stuff, get it, take it home. And Royce and I would go and I'd try to tell him, look at this, look at this, look at this. He was older than me. He was past the toy stage. I said, look at this. Here's a jungle gym, complete outfit with a rifle and a pistol, all of it. I can dress just like jungle gym. And then there was all kinds of stuff. And he said, we got to get this food. He said, he said, mom wants us to get the food. The food's important. That's not important. Food's important. And uh, that happened twice. That's not important. The food's important. And one time... My brother came to pick me up, and she didn't give us a grocery list. And I knew what he's going to say. The food's important. The food's important. I think he even quoted one time, man shall not live by bread alone. You know, food's important. But he took my hand. He was, uh, let's see, he must have been about 17 at the time. He took my hand and was uh, taking me out. And he did something that surprised me. He stopped at the edge and he said, let's look at these toys. And I thought, maybe he is saved, you know. <laughs> and he did that a second time. Just took me around and walked. And I owe him because he told mom which one I wanted and I got it for Christmas. But I will never forget it. I was an elementary school kid. He, he must have been closer to 19, I guess. And I, I said something like, thank you for looking at my toys. He said, uh, thank you for reminding me that sometimes the most important things we can focus on occur, we see when we look up. 
I don't know what God was speaking to his heart. I don't even know if he remembers that. But I, I've often thought of that. And we get so busy getting the stuff off the shelves that we forget what's up on the high shelf. I think that's why the Lord showed me that the glory of the church came out of her praying for the Lord's return. You see, whether, whether the doctrine of the pre-tribulation or rapture is right or wrong, that's not where I'm going. But I grew up in a mindset that said, heaven and the return of the Lord, that's our rescue plan. That's our golden parachute. And I want to tell you, I don't know of a time I've ever wanted Jesus to come more than I want him to come right now. I, I'm, I mean that sincerely. But can I tell you that it's no longer because of a rescue plan? It's because I want to see the one I have never seen. I want to be with the one that my soul longs for. And loved ones, if I may be so bold as to say it, that's where God's taking us. That's where he's taking us. That's why you won't find, I hope we have good election results, but that's not where your joy is going to be. I hope the Celtics begin winning championships <laughs> eight in a row again, but that's not where happiness is going to be. I want to ask you to do something very bold. I want to ask you to say, Lord, I'm willing to let you pierce my ear. We can't do that collectively because that's so intensely personal. But I'm going to ask you to consider letting the Lord mark you forever. You say, well, I don't want to be a servant. I want to be a son. Loved ones, the most frequently used designation of God's people in the New Testament is slave. We, we, I've never heard a series on be who you are in Christ that included slave. Never once. Because we want to focus on our standing. Yeah, you'll still be a slave. You'll be a slave forever. <clears throat> but you'll be his. And every time someone with any spiritual discernment sees you, they'll say, he does what he does. She does what she does. Not because she has to, but because she loves her master. Not everybody will see it. Not everybody will appreciate it. In fact, you may wear that earring for a long time before anybody ever knows it. But I guarantee you on that day when we cross over, on that day when Jesus comes, that earring, I think, will be the shiniest thing about you. Father, we've, we've got to go. I, I promise to end, even if it's not a good ending. So please help us as we begin to study these six things about coming to church. Father, help us to not view them as things we have to do, but help us to view them as things that a bondservant for life gets to do.